0: Hello and welcome back to the Irish Tennis Updates podcast. My name is Adam, your host. I'm really excited to bring you this week's episode and it's actually the first of a two-parter. I had a brilliant chat with Owen Casey last week and I can't wait for you to hear it. Owen was Irish number one for 15 years, had an incredible record in Davis Cup, played in three Olympics and the list goes on. In part one we talk about Owen's junior success, his time in college, highlights of his time on tour and what it was like to play the Olympics. And now, let's get into it. All right. So, Owen, firstly, just thanks very much for for talking today. It's it's really great to talk to you.
1: Thank you very much, Adam. How are you?
0: All good. Thanks. Thanks very much. Brilliant. Um. Yeah. So, how was how was the lockdown for you the last few months? Firstly, you know, away from tennis, back to tennis now. A few months. How were things? For me,
1: it was really good. Um. Probably one of the fewer people that enjoyed it because I work quite a lot and. I guess it was a guilt free break for, for want of a better word. The first two weeks, um, obviously, we didn't know how long it was. So I thought, okay, get a lot of stuff done around the house, which I'm sure every husband was <laughs> planning to do, putting on the long finger. Oh, now here's the time. Yeah. So I did all that. But then after the second week, it was like, okay, you know, sitting there twiddling your thumbs. Um, then, you know, in terms of food, you're eating lots. You're, you know, normally you'd be quite active, you'd be on the tennis court. Now you're kind of sitting around. You can't really leave the house unless you're getting food. Um, the Monopoly board got an absolute beating uh, As well as Jenga and any other board game that we could find uh, Because obviously, obviously I've got three kids and my wife So we were um, we were having a good time I, I enjoyed it uh, But obviously glad to be back on the courts When May 18 came It couldn't have come any sooner I guess
0: Yeah, absolutely absolutely. Um, you know, just, just to dig into your kind of tennis story Just to go back to the start Where, where did kind of your tennis uh, journey begin? Where, where, where did that all start for you?
1: Um, well, I was I originally grew up in the north side. I was from Glasnevin, and uh, I
0: played in a club called Riversdale, which was
1: three courts, and the fourth court was kind of a basketball slash football slash tennis court. So you know, it's kind of it was a small, it was a very small club, but with a massive community. So in terms of playing, um, if you wanted to play singles, you're only allowed forty-five minutes on the court. If you want to play doubles, you're allowed an hour and 15 minutes. So if you didn't have a you know, if you weren't on the court, you were obviously down the court for either playing basketball playing soccer or whatever. Um so it's a very healthy club, it's a great community, we had a lot of uh, at one stage I think we had 14 Leinster interprovincials between 12s, oh, yeah. uh, so I think twelve, fourteens, 14s and 18s. I'm not I can't this is going back ages so I don't know exactly the the, the age groups but uh really really good club, um great community spirit and, and I guess that's where I started. Um I I'm sure everyone knows my two brothers and my father was uh kind of an instigator in getting us going um, my mom a lot dad was big into the football and the Gaelic football so he was brought down by my mother not kicking and screaming but certainly not saying oh yeah this is great yeah. Um, he really got he got into it he really liked it and I guess subsequently we maybe we kicked the football around stuff like that I played for home farm so did Paul my brother Um, so we kind of moved more into tennis uh, well I certainly did Um. Kind of 11 and 12, I chipped a bone in my knee playing football for the school. And the doctor said, look, you can play football, but it'll probably keep swelling up. So you'll have to kind of play rest, play rest. Whereas if you stuck with tennis, it wouldn't give you any problems. Yeah, um, But kind of stuck stuck to tennis. Um, obviously, having the two brothers in front of me, we played a lot. My dad as well. Um, so, and then the club. So it really was, it was just, I, I pretty much, you know, played tennis nonstop. So that's kind of where it kicked off.
0: Yeah, no, I know. Then, as you kind of got older and you were playing your your junior events, you get you obviously had a lot of success. Got up to to fifty four, um, ITF. So, and then you, like you played played a couple of the grand slams. So, and I don't know you reached the last sixteen of of Wimbledon. Um, so how how highly would you rank that that kind of those achievements in in your kind of tennis journey? Um, I think there. Well, the thing was is, um, I guess at age
1: maybe 13, 14, I put a lot of effort. I lived in Glasnevin. Uh, the, there was two indoor courts at Fitzwilliam which you weren't allowed to be a member of and the other four courts that were indoor were up in Kilternan so I had to take okay. two buses I, I went to school in St. Aidan's which is literally right beside DCU so I'd take the 19A into town and then the 44 up to Kilternan and I would be playing with you know Ronan Reed Jerry Sheen and some other players so I'd spend two hours in the bus two hours up there and two hours coming home and like dinner on the bus on the way home schoolwork on the bus on the way home get home but kind of maybe 10, 15, 10, 20, and I'd be wrecked, bed, up for school. So I put a lot of effort yeah. into it. So I think maybe I did my junior cert. Um, back then it was called the InterCert. And fifth year, I decided to go to college in America to play university tennis. Okay. Uh, because of my age, I got a junior college because it's the NCAs obviously I was too young. Um, so that really worked out well, and that kind of kicked me off in terms of it was a very, very good school, a very good program. It was in Anderson in South Carolina. It was number one in the nation. Uh, a couple of Swedes on the team, a few Brazilians, Mexicans. So a really strong team. And I guess when I came out of there after the first year, I was in good shape. And That's when I played the ITFs. And I, I, I had a decent ranking before I went over because I played tournaments during the summer. But obviously, now that I have better tennis with me and then going out and playing these events, um, it was... I guess it was brilliant for me because it, it just ver- it, it kind of gave me the stamp that I needed that, yeah, I'd made the right move. Because I didn't do sixth yeah. year. I left fifth mm. year. I think it was 16 when I went over to college in America. So uh, it was brave of my parents to let me go because, you know, I wouldn't see many 16-year-olds. Would I let my 16-year-old go to college in America? No. That's the mm. plain answer. But they'd need to love tennis. I mean, I you know, the, the commitment I think I showed to my parents, the level of uh, I was willing to, to go to, to because I did everything. Uh, in terms of doing my own tennis, per se. Back then, there wasn't a lot. No Leinster squads, no national squads. Coaching was quite primitive, not, not as prolific as it is now. Yeah. So uh, I guess that helped the ITF, the juniors. You know, again, it gave me that confidence that I needed. So when I went when back to college in America, again, playing good tennis, using what I did in the summer to help me, you know, in my sophomore year. And then I just kicked on from there.
0: Um, yeah, so how difficult was that decision then to, to go to, to kind of leave School and go to the States? Were you kind of, you know, your heart set Not on it, or was it? Yeah, because...
1: for me, it wasn't that difficult. Yeah, um, yeah. no, no, look, I, I liked school. St. David's is a great school. I, I enjoyed the lads there and the teachers, some really good teachers. Um, But I just love tennis that much. I, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I kind of marvel at some of the kids. You know, nowadays, I said to two kids the other day, you know, a game on feast, and they're like, no. And I'm just shocked because, like at their age, I would have known all the players going back yeah. into the sixties. Yeah. So I would know a lot of the players now, past present. Um, but a lot of the top juniors wouldn't know who the who the players are, and it, that's a little bit alarming because I think if if you if you play a sport, you should know who the players are and who the best players are, and try to have a role model. So um, yeah,
0: absolutely. For yeah. me, you
1: know, I guess the tough part was probably my parents letting me go You know, it's just yeah, saying, yeah. Look, we believe in you, which they did. Thank God. And um, they gave me the, you know, the confidence to look, you know, if this is really what you want to do and you, you got your mindset on it. And of course, I was going there to college, so it wasn't like I was going, I hadn't turned pro yet in terms yeah. of, you know, this is my livelihood. It was, you know, obviously if I got injured or if it didn't work out, or if I ended up hating it, at least I'd have a degree.
0: Yeah. And so how, how long were you in, in the States for then?
1: Um, I was there for four years. I was two years at Anderson Junior College. We were, both nas- we were national champions about years, and then I went to Clemson University, which was literally 30 minutes down the road. Now, Clemson okay. is a huge football school now. Um, back then, it was top 10. not re- like Winning kind of, they've all different kind of bowls over there, but the main one is the Orange Bowl. They've been in the national championships for the last five years, so they've gone really like mega in terms of that. Um, but the reason, my main reason going there was their coach at that time, Chuck Creasy, was the, he, he was the, the coach who had the most players on the tour at that particular time from college tennis. Mm. So if, if he was over in Nebraska or if he was over in California, I would have gone because I was doing my research. The fact that he was literally 30 minutes down the road. Yeah. And our college coach was really good friends with him. And we would play them literally once a week. Now, we wouldn't play their top six players because that was against the rules. But we would play their second string, and their second string were nearly as good as their top string. Yeah. So it, was, it, you know, and it gave me an idea because Anderson was very small. Anderson was maybe one thousand students, so it was quite small. Uh, everybody knew each other. So if mm. you got into trouble, yeah. <laughs> everyone knew you're in trouble. Um. Whereas Clemson was massive. Uh, There's maybe sixteen, seventeen thousand students back then. It's probably more now. But um, the campus was huge. The football stadium. I was like, whoa. Um. You know. So it, it was. It was a. It was a no-brainer from a move point of view, but it was more not so much the university, but it was more the, the actual coach. The coach was just yeah. outstanding, uh,
0: amazing. Yeah. So from those four years, what are your kind of best memories you look back at from from the from oh the... lord?
1: Well, um, I guess in Anderson, <laughs> um, definitely the two national championships we played them out in Tyler, Texas, because that's ultimately what you're playing for. Uh, North Greenville, which South Carolina, if anyone's familiar, North Greenville's in. Um, I think it's in North Carolina, but it's not that far from us. Uh, it could be in South Carolina. We're very, very close to us. Huge rivals. We were number mm-hmm. one. They were number two. So when we went to their school, it was like a pitch battle. I, like when you were getting a ball at the back of the court, you were spat at. Uh, your mother was called everything. Your sister was called everything. Um, it was. It was. It was. For me, it was an eye opener. Now the, the coach mm-hmm. warned us and, and fellow players, like you know, this is going to be and I was like oh, yeah, yeah, I am kind of used to that no 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 no. you don't get this <laughs> it'll, it'll never be like, and again, you know I've played tennis a lot before then you would never get I never got abused as much as I did yeah up there. now we still won you know but this <laughs> yeah. is part of, this, is, this is their coach this is what he did and like when they came down to play us uh, like campus security had to come out because our, our so not many of our students would go up there yeah but their students would come down like their coach would get their students to come down and and, and make noise so the like our student our student body were quite res- not reserved but they were you know they would respect they would respect people uh, and when they saw this happening like you know people getting spat at and they'd be then starting to call the student's names. so that was kind of probably the, a little bad thing you know but at the same time, it, it kind of it made the intensity fun, but it was, you know, it was an eye opener. You know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of um, good memories. Um, you know, again, when I went to Clemson, going to my first football game, huge, um, you know, 88,000 people at the stadium watching this football game. Now, I didn't trust me. You know, at that stage, I'm 18 years of age and I'm, you know, really baffled as to how a game that should take an hour is taking four hours. I couldn't do the math on this. And I was like, yeah. why is there so much stopping? Because I didn't, didn't really pay much, too much attention to it. I still, back then, kind of tennis and football. I'd be following what was going on in Europe, but yeah. I wouldn't be uh, following too much in, in what was happening in America. But with great memories. Um, you know, the parties, I guess, at Clemson were just astronomical. Um, that's the one thing about college. You know, is particularly if you've got a big football team, the parties at the end are just outrageous. You know, you're looking at over you know, one, 2,000 people and music yeah. is cranked and everything. So, but, I'm, I'm not I'm not saying I was a saint. Um, we kind of only had, back then, there was no rules with the NCAAs. So, we could, basically, we would train four hours a day, six days a week. Okay. Uh, now, it's all different. You can only do about 20 hours and that's including gym. I'm, when I say four hours a week, I'm talking tennis. I'm not including gym work. So, you can throw another two hours of gym work in there. It's nearly six hours a day. So it was yeah. a full time job. Yeah. We had Sunday off. So you couldn't really go out and go out in a bender on Saturday night, take Sunday off, and then be ready to go again on Monday. So it was very, very disciplined, and the training was exceptionally hard. Our coach was very, he's a true disciplinarian and he is he, kind of military. You know, he found that the more he trained us and the more, the harder we worked, the stronger we got, both as an individual and as a unit. Like we did now. Nowadays, I wouldn't think too much of it, but we did what's called morning madness. Now, a lot of colleges, a lot of college players are like, oh, that's crazy getting up at six o'clock in the morning. Like Six o'clock in the morning now is something I do regularly. But back then, you get up at six o'clock, you run down to the track, which is a mile. You do a mile for time, so you had to do it under five and a half minutes. Uh, for every kind of seconds you got over, then that was reduced on the last one. Mm-hmm. Then you do your sprints in between, and then to go home, you had to run that mile again under 5.30 you know again so it was one hour yeah it was it was intense um, one day in each week so you do that for 14 days um, and each one day no no specific day named the coach would drive by the track that means you're going into the mountains so you're literally jogging behind his car for, for one hour now if you were anyway slow or you got tired or you couldn't keep up you would get lost because I wouldn't know where I was going. I know I'm jogging yeah. on this road, but if I'm you know, imagine you're doing an hour of running, so and it's it's you know it's not a light jog. You know back then we're 18 years of age, so we're quite fit, and you're running with you know 20 year olds. Um, so you had to keep up. You had to keep up. One or two lads got left behind. Yeah, one or two lads got left behind. Um, but that was the nature of the beast. And then to make the team, you had to do a mile under five minutes, and you had to do a 400. Under 75 seconds, okay. So, the fastest mile I ever ran in my life was 452. There yeah. you I, go, yeah. I got you, I got, yeah. Well, there's, there's one ladder like it was just you had to do it, if you, you know, you had to keep running this. If you didn't do it, then you couldn't get on the team, even if you're a full full scholarship. The number one guy on the team yeah. had to do the same, it was all the same for everybody, yeah. So, that was a good thing. There was no favoritism, uh, but we we're so fit, so so fit, and um, again, that. For me, having those two years under him, the discipline which I achieved from him was just, you know, I guess it's, it's standing to me today.
0: Yeah, so having worked that hard for those years in the US, how equipped did you then feel when you were kind of went to go pro and go full time on the tour? Were you kind of, you know, you had that mentali- mentality ready to go almost?
1: I was ready. When I finished my college um, career, I was about 600 in the world, which was great. Mm-hmm. because then I didn't have to like when I went back out it's not like I'm starting from scratch I think playing during the summer helped me an awful lot because that way you know when I finished in in, in what was whatever June of uh, what was it 1990? Yeah, June 1990 I finished up I could then start immediately playing which I did so the transition wasn't that it wasn't big Um, I guess the competition was because I wasn't used to this volume of players you know I guess when you're playing college tennis you're only seeing a team so you're looking at maybe six to eight players suddenly now there's 32 64 players it's like whoa yeah. um, so that was a little bit daunting um, the travelling was a little bit daunting as well because I'm on my own um, there's no one from Ireland Owen Collins was was, was playing professional then at the that stage but he only played a year he kind not played a year and then okay. gave up um, so I was on my own and so when you get to these venues the first thing you're looking at is is now you have to remember Adam back in this day these days there's no internet. There's no. There's no. No. No smartphones. No internet. No Google. Yeah. It's pretty much phone and fax. So
0: if you buy so yourself, every, you're really by yourself. Yeah.
1: Well, my father was big help in that regard. It was a full time job for him. He did an awful lot of work for me. Okay. Um, like we had to get two passports because again, if I was let's say I was in Portugal and I was going out to Asia, I need to get a visa. Now, obviously, if we have it, like, again, back then, it sounds very old here. Back then, there was no, there wasn't that many embassies here in Ireland. All the embassies were in London, so either I'd have to post my passport over to London, which I couldn't because I was in Portugal,
0: yeah.
1: or I'd have to stay in London. And obviously, it takes you know a day or two to turn a passport around. So you know, if you drop it in Monday morning at nine o'clock, you'd have to come back maybe Tuesday afternoon to pick it up. So and again, not back back then, flights weren't that cheap; they're expensive. Um, you had to to get the best price. You have to have the right time and day, so you couldn't really just rock up to Heath, you know, Gadwick or Heathrow and say, "Oh, can I have the last flight out?" Yeah. So he was instrumental in kind of doing all this stuff for me. He found out like I, I could get a second passport. That helped a lot because obviously yeah. if I was away, he would host it. So, um, but as I guess as as time went by, you figured out easier ways to do things. Um, obviously, I started to know a lot of players, so we would take numbers and say, look, if you're playing here, do you want to room together? Or sometimes, you know, if you're playing with your doubles partner, you start, you know, um, rooming with them. Uh, and ideally, I, you know, kind of, I guess, um, my second year, like in 1992, I kind of hooked up with a guy from U- University of North Carolina, Don Johnson, and we did really well. And you're always trying to cut costs, always. So, you know, it was just about trying to save as much money so then that money can be used somewhere else down the line.
0: Um, yeah, so so kind of in your kind of I guess fifteen or so years on the tour, how did that experience and those kind of challenges change? Like, how did you get used to them, or did, were there new challenges over the years? Like, how, how did that experience change for you?
1: Yeah, I guess you know it was it was trying. Yeah, the, the scheduling also helped as well because more and more tournaments became on board. Like at the start, you know, the system also changed. Initially, it was your it was your um, your best twelve events counted for your ranking
0: mm.
1: so if i played 14 or 15 events then my ranking starts getting lower because you're dividing it by 14 as opposed to divide by 12 oh,
0: okay then
1: it changed and then it became so that helped an awful lot that gave us a little bit more well it gave us more ability to play more tournaments and um, means you're spending obviously more money as well so you're then starting to plan the circuits better because you know instead of Flying out to Asia, then back to Europe, and then over to North America, it could be a situation where you could take two circuits close by, by uh, side by side, because more and more countries were putting on tournaments. Um, because the ITF were also issuing grants to, 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 to lesser wealthy nations, so that helped as well. So I guess it was a combination of the the, the the changing in the structure of how the points were given out, and then obviously more and more tournaments being being put on the schedule.
0: Yeah, and um, if so I have to ask, 2000, uh, you win the Irish Open. So, how special was that among your, oh, your victories over the years?
1: Um, yeah, that's up there. I, I guess, first of all, I walked into Mount Pleasant, and now I was playing the number one seed, and that was Mr. Ivo Karlovic. And when I walked into Mount Pleasant, Case, Case, you know, you're playing the number one seed, have you seen him? I'm like, no, oh, he's from Croatia, how can I see him? He's about 6'10". And I go, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're having, you're having a yeah. laugh. No no one's that big. Um, and sure enough, uh, I see him and he's a big lad. So I beat him in three sets. Uh, I think he was over just to kind of get a feel because we played them in Davis Cup that summer. Okay. So Goran, him, and Antic came over. And then a guy called Gilles Elsner, who I beat in the final, he subsequently went on that, that summer to get to the quarterfinals of Queen's. So, those two victories would probably be um, <clears throat> ones that I would remember the most from that tournament. But it was, it was sweet. It was nice to win that. It really was. A, I, that was a great week for me.
0: Um, yeah, so you mentioned a couple of really good wins there. What do you think is your your best win from this like, play? Your, your be- best win? Ever?
1: Golly. I, I couldn't. I wouldn't know. I mean, I beat Mal Washington in... in, in, in the Rolex, that's up in, in New York. So, in, in at Christmas, you've got kind of the Orange Bowl and then you've got a thing called the Rolex. So, it's sponsored by Rolex. It's a big tournament in Port Washington, New York. So, Mal Washington was, you know, he, he, he was in the final of Wimbledon in 96. I played him in the final in 89. So, you know, Freddie Ferdinand, top 100 player from Denmark. Um, I don't know. I guess, I think for me, the best match I ever played was against... Um, Magnus Gustafsson in the Olympics in '92 in Barcelona, um, and that was for me because he was he was twelve in the world at that stage, and he was renowned for being a clay court specialist. So I went three sets with him. Um, I did four sets with Gorn; didn't beat him. Gorn's match was a little bit more different because it was so fast. Um, it's not like you have time to take things in. It's not like there's a massive yeah. amount of tennis being played because it's just you know it was, the whole thing was trying to get his serve back. But the Gustafsson. Moment, was brilliant because uh, obviously it's on clay court it's in Barcelona the heat was lovely uh, it was a really good match we played good spirits you know um, so I guess that one uh, and then maybe winning the first round in the doubles in, in Barcelona I guess but there's a lot of I mean now that you mention it like Davis Cup gosh I mean tons of wins there yeah. my first Davis Cup win it was in Mount Pleasant against Greece um, I there's a lot of there's a lot of matches there. I, I, I would find it very I'd need that I'd need more yeah. time to think about that. Because when you think of one then you think of another and then suddenly yeah. it's kind of well it rolls on and on and on. So there's there's a lot of there's a lot like there's another guy, Philip the Wolf, he made semi-finals at French Open. We beat I beat him in, in ninety two in a challenger in Brunei. And then I don't know what year, it might have been ninety six he made semi finals at French Open. So yeah, you know, and then you have the Potter Cup last year. Potter Cup was amazing, yeah. oh, so yeah. um, that was really good. So there's a lot of there's a lot of good wins there. Um, but they're all all, all good, all good. I, I, it's very hard to just pick one.
0: Um, yeah, to touch on on the Olympics, I know you played played three times the Olympics. So how was that first one in in '88? Sack, you know. Get, um, oh to get gosh, to know that was one. an absolute.
1: Yeah, the first one was an absolute nightmare. So we went to Linz to qualify in Austria. So um, seven Nolan Collins did that. That was brilliant. So off we go. We're go we're in college. I'm in South Carolina and owns in Indiana. So we've got to get to Seoul, Korea. Now, I knew nothing about visas in terms of back then, but it's even now. Basically, I left the country, and I didn't re- – not that I didn't report it, but I didn't – when I was coming back in, they wouldn't let me back in to L.A. because I left the country. I had to get a new I-20. And it's like, well, I didn't know about this. Like I'm only 16. Well, it wasn't 16. I said, I'm only 17. I don't know any of this. But when we got out there um, – <clears throat> It was amazing. Uh, The 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 three things that are really well, all the opening ceremonies are absolutely brilliant. They they, they're the pinnacle for me, Uh, I guess playing as well. But uh, the villages are amazing. I think Barcelona was by far the best one because we're right in the middle of the village. uh, Literally opposite the food hall, which is great. So we didn't have to travel too far. Um, Lots of really kind of. I can't say on, on on this because I don't know what age is going to be watching this, but there's some serious stuff going on in the village itself. A lot of, yeah. you know, swimmers not, not necessarily clothing, walking around, you know, after they finish. So there's just, there's a lot of kind of blow-off steam stuff that went on that was, it was funny, you know, the Dream Team came in one day. So you're seeing Michael Jordan and all these guys, Larry Bird. So it was, Barcelona was probably the best one. But the first one was, I was probably a little bit too young to take it in, to be honest. Um, in college I was told look as soon as you're finished you have to come back you can't stay out there too long Um, because I would go out there maybe four or five days early to get acclimatised Yeah, so it takes a while so Barcelona's really good had a great time Atlanta was Atlanta it wasn't brilliant Um, the village itself was colossal it was Georgia Tech so it's a really really big campus Uh, and we played in Stone Mountain which is about an hour and a half drive on a bus so we only played there once so we were there for two weeks um, but we only went up there once just to kind of get a feel for it because you're not going to go up there if you're going to go up there two hours up and two hours down it's your, it's your day gone um, and then you can't do anything else so we kind of only we went up there once or twice just to feel the place but we were able to train at Georgia Tech so we were able to train then go to the gym and then get our massages and food and so on and so on
0: and yeah.
1: um, I think yes Atlanta Seoul, the, the, Seoul was brilliant, the actual city. I really, really enjoyed Seoul. It was a, because at that stage now I hadn't been to Asia and it was a massive eye opener. Um, Barcelona is lovely. Barcelona is a European city. So I guess there wasn't anything there that you wouldn't necessarily not expect. And then Atlanta, I was being, at that stage now I'd been to Atlanta numerous times because Clemson and South Carolina, South Carolina, where I was in college, is only two hours up the road. So I would have used Atlanta as the place where I'd fly in.
0: Yeah, so, but definitely Barcelona for me now was
1: was amazing.
0: Yeah, I guess it must just be being in that environment around all those you know top top athletes must just be a an unbelievable kind of experience to see those you know world champions and and yeah, so
1: on. absolutely. I mean, it's it's and they're all from different sports. Like and as an athlete, you can only get tickets for the sports that your your country is involved in. Okay, so you know, in terms of for. for basketball we couldn't get any basketball tickets because we didn't have a basketball team but like you'd still go out you'll still go to all the other events and you're seeing all the top athletes you're seeing Phelps. you're seeing like so many different athletes and then when you go into the training room and you see them train and stuff like that it it is you know it it is just it's it's a cauldron of just intensity and you know these are the best athletes in the world at what they do and you see them and how they act and how they eat and how they walk and and that actually inspired me quite a lot because <laughs> subsequently after Barcelona, I went out to Asia. So I was wearing all my Olympic gear. <laughs> yeah.
0: And
1: I was like, oh, you were at the Olympics? I said, yeah, I was at the Olympics. So everyone's like, oh, wow, you must be good. And I'm like, yeah, I am good. And then by the time you went and play a match, you know, oh, you're an Olympic athlete. So, you know, it was giving you a lot of extra value onto your game that maybe yeah. someone might not have given you initially, you know. But, um it was yeah it it gave me like to, because we had to qualify like the thing is it wasn't just handed to us yeah. so the main thing there was that we came through qualifying um in 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 88 i lost last round of qualifying to a guy called ralph herzog who's from switzerland seven and won the double, so we qualified directly for uh barcelona i lost to gilad bloom in the last round of qualifying, so he went into main draw. Now I subsequently got into main draw because Becker pulled out that year. So mm-hmm. and then we qualified for the doubles. Um, in fact, we got into the doubles direct acceptance because Owen and I's ranking was high enough. And then for Atlanta, myself and Scott, our ranking was high enough to get in as direct acceptance. So we didn't have to qualify. But the first two were very good. We had to qualify for both of them.
0: Yeah, so I guess it's it's being there is is such that, that you know that massive achievement. So in in which of those three was, was your big biggest success playing was your your biggest like ten matches? Ten oh matches.
1: gosh, um, certainly well okay, so myself and home we lost to Mansdorf and Bloom. Now we're going see this is how I talk about earlier about known names. People who, who know tennis would remember Mansdorf and Bloom. They're very, very good players. So we lost to them three sets. Then in Barcelona, obviously, had a good singles match against Gustafson. Doubles, we beat Levey and Maciel. Now, Levey and Maciel, Levey won Wimbledon the previous year. Doubles. So, my 7-0 beat Correct. them. Then Correct. we played Halasic and Rossi. And Rossi was, I think, either gold or silver medalist that year. But Halasic was in Wimbledon, I don't know how many times in the finals. He used yeah. to play with Fourier. We lost to them. Tough, tough, tough two sets. And then in... Atlanta, we played the number two seeds, Connell and Nestor. Now, Connell and Nestor at that stage were Grand Slam winners. And myself and Scott lost to those guys four and four. So it's not like we we disgraced ourselves. Though, the two Irish lads, like we gave good account. Like we actually played really, really, really well against these former Grand Slam champions yeah. and top fifty players. So um, Barcelona, though, for sure probably because we got that win over Levi and Maciel, and then we played Lasic and and and, and I think that was that was probably the better ones uh, in terms of competition.
0: Yeah, no incredible stuff. Um so then like in terms of obviously that being the Olympics, like back home in Ireland, how much support did you feel above and beyond what you'd get normally? Like did you really feel you know, huge, huge support in the media, the public.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Again, this is now before phones. Now, obviously, we're kind of coming in, in Atlanta, we're kind of coming into the era of phones. We got a phone from Motorola, but it was only to make calls within America. So that wasn't really a great help to us. Um, so you'd be getting faxes every day, you know. um, Back then, was it Aircom? I think Aircom were, can't even remember, maybe Post and Telegraph. So, for example, when we were in Seoul, Korea, we were given credit Every day to call back home, so that was good. Uh, as I said, you'd get the um, you'd get the the, the, the the phone the faxes and te- tele was it tele- telex messages. So like I can't I can't remember the word. It's basically like a piece of paper with writing on it. Um, so that's again. So you'd be getting all this, and you'd be getting them from random people. Like you'd be getting okay. from people who you don't know, who would be avid tennis players. Like they might be down in Cork or might be in Galway or Nina or whatever, I'm wishing you the very best of luck and hope you do well and it was really nice um so you could definitely feel the support uh and, and barcelona probably had more support there because it was closer to yeah. home uh, whereas at the career just a bit too far
0: yeah and that is where we're going to leave it for part one of this interview big thanks to owen for his time and to you for listening if you enjoyed please subscribe leave a comment tell a friend and help get the podcast into the right hands And make sure to join me again next week for part two of this brilliant chat with Owen Casey. Next week, Owen talks about playing Davis Cup, uh, the world of coaching, his time as Davis Cup and Fed Cup captains, um, looking at Irish tennis and what could possibly be done to, to improve the state of Irish tennis, his advice for junior players and a whole lot more. So make sure to join us again next week for that. And until then, I've been Adam. Goodbye.